I think it's particularly significant that Kim Woo Jin is one of the few shooters on the Korean team using a field quiver, and yet he finished number one in the team selection, Steve. Well, others should take note. That's probably the only difference. Hi, I'm George Tekmachov here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson, Eastern Target Podcast. I think this is 177. If I'm wrong, we'll we'll do the usual edit. No, it's 178. But uh, yeah, a lot has been going on. You've been busy. You have been on the road for uh, a number of events. I, you and I haven't really talked since uh, before Louisville Indoor Nationals. Yeah, and a lot happening. A lot happening. And uh, you're particularly busy because you're wearing at least three hats right now. You're wearing your Easton hat, which is a big hat. You're, you're wearing your, your hat as somebody who's, you know... Uh, being resourced by a lot of shooters this time of year for advice about equipment. And you're getting ready yourself to get on the road for the World Cup circuit. So what's it like preparing? Um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I, I kind of am just going day by day right now. I don't think too much about stuff. World Cup still seems a long ways away just because, you know, might snow here like next week and, March and yeah and it was 80 degrees sort of three days ago <laughs> yeah so you don't know and it just doesn't feel like world cup season until uh we actually go to one I guess yeah and yet that is coming up pretty quickly uh, the first of the events is in Antalya Turkey uh about a little less than a month from now in fact to three weeks from now um yeah but the entire U.S. team like all the all the men's compound, I think all the women's compound, we declined that event. Oh, you're not going to Antalya? No, we're Antalya. not going to Antalya. I should have looked at the entries before I brought it up, but yeah. um, we're going to Korea. But well, not be, Antalya. Uh, Korea will be a good one. Yeah, and we'll have like we'll have a team there. I'm just not sure entirely who's going. They like really they couldn't they couldn't get people to go. Because it's a, no to uh, Antalya. Oh, it's to a self-funded event. It's really expensive. I mean, between you know, for me, for Linda and I, it'd be about seven thousand dollars. So I, I didn't realize it was self-funded. Uh, uh, is that the normal uh, situation, Steve? Um, with USA Archery, we typically have of the four World Cups. Typically, one is self-funded, and it's often Antalya, but it's usually the second or third event of the year. So generally what happens is they fund that event for anyone who is in top 10 of world cup rankings. So after event one or one and two, they'll assess that and then they'll fund you or they won't. So it, it can, yeah, but generally this is compound speaking. I don't know. It's probably different for recurve. They're probably funded for all of them, but with compound, that's how it works. So I've never, um the world cup team is probably 20 2014 was my first one um you know the majority of the event was self-funded so that's how we started going and and then things changed i think we got i remember right it was some money from the eastern foundation covered uh went to cover sponsorship for specifically compound teams to fund those events yeah, because recurve and, comes out of uh, you know Olympic uh, trickle down. Money. Yeah, uh, yeah, they have a different funding pool. Um, so anyhow, yeah, this one's self funded, and none of us. Uh, it's just with the way things are right now. 
Um, no, you don't have to explain. I get it. Well, yeah, there was first, we also had to make the decision, um, at kind of a bad time, you know, things were between Russia and Ukraine were kind of just kicking off and we didn't know what was going to happen. So we all talked as a team and we just said, Hey, I, I, you know, we think it's probably best if a lot of guys weren't going to, a couple of guys weren't going to go anyways, because they weren't going to do a self-funded event when they could go to an ASA the same weekend and, and potentially earn significantly more money. So from an economic standpoint, they weren't going to go anyways. And then the rest of us kind of thought, well, we don't know where the world's going to be. You know, if we were deciding today, it might be a different choice. But um, at that time, when the deadline where we had to make the choice, we just thought, now nah, let's let's uh, stay on home soil for the time being. Yeah, I get it. A hundred percent. So for Guangzhou, which is going to be um, 16 to 22 of May, that gives you some extra time to prepare. Uh, yeah. It's you on the U.S. team for the men, along with Braden Galantine and uh, Chris Schaff and uh, Jimmy Lutz, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, be a pretty fun team, I think. I think so, too. And then for the uh, compound women, Cassidy Cox and Lexi Keller, along with your wife, Linda, and Paige Pierce. That's a powerhouse team. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was. I knew it was Linda and Paige. I wasn't sure who others would be just because i know some people opted out for this year I, so yeah that's a good team they'll have a good team absolutely for the recurve men the usa is uh, going to be sending brady ellison along with uh oju sun um who is a, a newer shooter coming out of the program in southern california matt rika who is a uh, longtime resident athlete and jack williams who uh stormed to victory in the uh, finals in the World Cup last year. So that'll be a, a strong team for the USA recurve men. And then for the recurve women going to Korea, team will be led by Casey Koffold of the United States and uh, Aaron Mickleberry will be on there. Jennifer Musino Fernandez, who had her Olympic debut in Tokyo last year. And Gabrielle Sasai, who's an up and coming American shooter. And they're going to be up against uh, some of the best in the world, of course. You know, they haven't named the team from Korea yet, but you can pretty well bet that Ann San will probably be there along with some of her teammates. Uh, Korea just having completed their uh, team selection, which is, I don't know, Steve, I, I think I am on pretty firm ground if I argue that the Korean team selection process is probably the toughest series of selection events in the world. Yeah, I don't know how they do their selection, you know, if it's contested over like a year with rolling ranking, kind of like we do in the U.S. Or uh, it seems to be that it comes down to kind of a specific event. At least that might hold a good portion of that selection. I don't know. As a matter of fact, they uh, actually pulled out major event bonuses from this process. So, you know, winning the Olympic Games doesn't do you any good. Winning the world championships doesn't do you any good, which is why the winner of the world champion in the women's category didn't make the team this year. You know, Steve, this year, Korea is making a full court press for compound. Um, They have added two additional slots for men and women in the compound group. So they've got a six group for compound, um, six men, six women, the biggest ever. And the full court press is because of the Asian games taking place in September. 
it'll have a full compound competition program for the first time with individual, mixed, and team events. And it's really clear to me, Steve, that Korea is absolutely going after the compound category just as strong as they have in the recurve. They have started a youth program for compound that's modeled after their very successful recurve program. So the results will show probably in September. We'll see what happens at the Asian Games. But I think you're going to get a taste of it at, uh, at this World Cup that you're going to go to in Guangzhou. Can't wait. Absolutely. And I think that it's going to be one of the highlights of the season, that uh, first World Cup in Korea in some time. We also have results from the trials process that took place in Korea. Uh, and as I mentioned in a previous podcast, a lot of uh, famous names are back. You know, as, as we started out, we talked about Kim Woo-jin, but we've also got the former world number one, Kang the Destroyer, Che Young, and the Iron Man, Steve. You and I both have to agree on one thing, and that is Oh Jin Hyuk is awesome. Yeah, I really don't care about anybody else except Oh Jin Hyuk right now. <laughs> no, there's actually a number of shooters, like Lee Soon Yoon, who was on the 2016 team. He's yes. back on. Um, there, so there's some other people, like you mentioned, Choi Mi Soon. We haven't seen her in a while. Yeah. Um, Ann San, of course, you know, would have been yeah. a shock if Ann San hadn't made the team. Um, Joy Masoon, as I mentioned, Joe but it would have been. It actually wouldn't have. It's a shock that she did make the team, kind of. Yeah, to your it's, point. It's yeah, not uncommon right. for the gold medalist to fail the next year to make. The you team. are absolutely correct, and as a result, you know, we weren't terribly shocked when we saw that um, a number of luminaries were not on the team again. Uh, Chang Hai Jin, for example, went out 14th place out of the last 16 in contention. So, you know, a number of uh, a number of tough decisions, but the Koreans are clearly uh, very focused on results this season. And I think with the compressed timeline, getting ready for the Paris Olympic Games, because remember, we lost a year. Um, I think that they're certainly going to be pushing hard on all these categories. But again, I, I think it's really interesting this focus they've got on compound. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about that for years now. It's the same guys, you know, I'm looking at the team. Same guys we've seen before, Kim Jong-ho, kind of their best shooter. Yeah. The last five, six years. Yeah, and uh, Choi Young-hee, not a, not a bad shooter. Uh, the, co the compound women are strong for Korea. So Che Won and uh, Kim Yoon-hee, uh, a lot of experience there. And Song Yun-soo has been been around so as OU Hyun, but they've got a few newbies, um, you know, on the team. And so we'll see what comes out of there. Could be some surprises. By the way, the recurve women have uh, at least three shooters that don't have much international experience. So it'll be interesting to see what happens on that side too. Well, looking ahead at uh, the rest of the calendar with Guangzhou kicking off the World Cup circuit, there will be events in Medellin, Colombia, and of course, a big one in Paris, France, which uh, I, you know, Steve, I think that one's going to have a big public turnout because of the interest ahead of the Olympic Games. And um, France has just named their team for the 2022 international season. And it's mostly folks, it's completely folks who are uh, familiar to anybody following Team France, but they do have a new head coach. France has hired a Korean coach. Oh, Seon Tech, who had uh, coached for Korea, I believe, in 2000 and again in 2008 at the Olympic Games, if I have my numbers right. So he's been around 
you know, and, and knows things, it's going to be interesting to see whether his cultural perspective works well with the French team. Yeah, um, they've had some shakeups in coaching the last two cycles, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? No, you're not mistaken. You're absolutely correct. And um, I think it's interesting that they have uh, been doing that. But I also think that uh, one of the, uh, shall we say, the constants has been people like Pierre Plihon, Thomas Chiron, and JC Valadon are going to be the men's team. And for the women, they've got Audrea Dicion, Melanie Gobil, and Lisa Barbalone. Yeah, uh, they've changed coaches, but you know, by and large, a lot of a lot of the uh, techniques still look the same. I, you know, specifically John Charles, the way he draws the bow is very distinct, and it's looked the same through at least two coaches now. Yeah, I, I kind of think of it as the Mark Dellenbach. Uh, you know, Mark was the coach then, and. It, that was a system, that draw system that you saw him use. You also see with some of the other men and a couple of the women, um, it is a unique draw, right? It's very low and then it comes up. And it's, um, to be brutally honest with you, it looks kind of painful to me. But yeah, I, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a silver medal at the Olympic Games. You can't, you can't say it doesn't work. So where is Mark Dellenbach now? Is he in Germany still? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's still in Germany. Um, haven't heard any news out of out of Germany in terms of any changes to coaching there. So I think Mark Dellenbach is in Germany. But some interesting news out of Belgium. They have uh, just brought on Witsi van Alten as their new head coach. Now, Witsi, who was bronze medalist of the Sydney Olympic Games back in 2000, He's got a good reputation as a high-level coach, and he's back to coaching in archery after taking three years off to work on developing sport fishing in the southern part of the Netherlands. So he's back into archery, and he's starting out with uh, the team of Belgium. And it looks like Belgium is, is making a push to try to get back to, you know, they used to be quite the brilliant archery country. Um, and I think that they're making a push again. They have a new program they call the Yellow Arrows. Now, Witsi was the coach of both the Dutch team and the Italian team. And so coming back to archery now as a coach of the Belgian team, the Belgians have put some money into archery, uh, more financial support and more technical support. They've got a new technical director. And so their National Olympic Committee is working to support it. And that's the first steps toward building a program. Now, the question is, will it be in time for the Paris Games? Could be. Uh, possible but i think it's really interesting that witsy is back in archery i think that's a good thing yeah um i remember i don't remember when he last coached for italy but obviously they had some success at the recent olympics and you know even if it was three years ago or whatever there's still you know that foundation of their olympic success didn't start in 2021 you know it started probably years before that and certainly Witsi was a part of it yes absolutely true so we'll see what happens with Belgium now that Witsi is there um, there are a number of uh, events around Belgium that'll be a good opportunity to see what happens in competition Witsi is going to use European championships which will take place in Munich later this year also that third stage of the World Cup that'll be in Paris he'll be uh, looking to build but um, 
it's going to be very interesting to see what happens by say next year, give them, give them at least one year to get things worked out. The important thing is of course, the qualification period for the Paris 2024 game starts at next summer's world championships. Um, so, you know, that yeah, 2023 right world corner. championship is a big deal. Well, it really is. If you yeah. look at it from a preparation standpoint, you know, Kesey Lee pointed out very clearly in the last podcast that, uh, this compressed Olympic training cycle is going to require some changes and some uh, focus, you know, to really get ready in time because it really is only one year. If you look at it from that perspective to be prepared to go to the Olympic games. Yeah. You, know, you, 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 you really have to start picking your gear. Yeah. And uh, pressure will be there, you know, and of course now in the United States without Mac on the team, uh, we're going to be seeing opportunities for some recurve women coming up, we saw, for example, Aaron Mickleberry uh, will be on the team for the World Cup in, in Korea. I think that'll that'll uh, possibly be a good bellwether for where we're at from the standpoint of a cohesive American women's recurve team with uh, obviously Casey uh, going to college. That's also going to mean potentially some changes for her emphasis. You know, I mean, her, her main job in college is going to be studying, not not shooting as much. It'll be interesting to see what effects that has. Yeah, that uh, is not going to be easy. I think the American men are rounding into pretty good form overall. Um, obviously, Brady's still shooting at a very high level, and I expect he will for as long as he wants to. Um, yeah, same for Jack. Jack is is he's finding new levels, you know? Yeah. Jack is uh, – He's right there in terms of competitiveness outdoors. I think he'll. I think by next year he'll be competitive with about anybody on any day. Yeah, he um, proved that in Yankton last um, year. Yeah, I mean he already is there. It's just there's going to be a consistency factor. I think that comes with once you start getting some of that success, you kind of taste that, and you, it becomes a little easier to obtain that each time. Um, yeah, and I think that's where he'll be at. Yep, he's and, currently. Training as an offsite RA in San Diego, so I think that'll be good for him. Um, I think that you know having the resources of the Easton Archery Training Center there, along with uh, all the resources of the national team, but not necessarily having to live at the training center, that can be actually a very good thing. Yeah, um, I'm not sure I'd want to live at the training center myself. It, you know, at some point. Well, don't nice get me wrong. Time. I mean, it's it's a nice place and, and it's really got great facilities. But uh, even with all of the infrastructure that has grown up around it, it is still an isolated kind of experience. And uh, I think that, you know, Brady didn't live there for a long time. He uh, trained there, but he had his own place. I, I think having your life separate can be a useful thing i think when you're developing maybe that total immersion kind of situation can be a good thing but uh, yeah eventually i think it does help to get away from it so he's probably that's what at i was getting point. at yeah, yeah that's what i was getting at the then the finding a, a steady third is going to be important um juni will be he looks like he might be that guy you know matt requa i don't know how long i think he wasn't even intending to shoot a whole lot longer um but I think he's on the team for the World Cup and planned on going, I guess. So I don't, I don't know the story there. Yeah. But, yeah, finding a steady third and then even more important, uh, a good fourth and fifth that, you know, three, four, and five all push each other and 
and eventually catch up a little bit to one and two. I think that's that's the 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 goal for the U.S. men's team. But they're on a really solid foundation. U.S. women's team losing Mac. Um, you know, Casey is ideally going to continue to improve, and I expect she will. And even though she's going to college, I still think that'll might help her actually. You know, with her archery, just uh, change of scenery and and focus on she's probably been going pretty darn hard you know all things archery the last few years and you can kind of divert some energy elsewhere it might actually help her um and you know just being at texas a&m where they do they are into archery so they will shoot plenty that's not going to be an issue um but i think she's going to have to carry a lot of the load until we can get some more experience on that side yeah i think you're you're dead on i think you're absolutely correct one of the uh interesting things as you look through who is registered for the world cup events you notice that germany um is in a building program right now with their women they've got a couple of women who've got very good international experience and a couple of uh, relative newcomers Another one, uh, Mexico. Mexico is carrying over many of their already accomplished shooters like Ana Vasquez and Alejandra Valencia. And um, Ida Roman continuing uh, to uh, lead the Mexican team. Uh, Brazil coming back with uh, familiar faces. We're seeing familiar faces from Turkey like Anagots, uh, Yasmin Anagots, and uh, a couple of uh, newer shooters out of Turkey. But in very general terms, the team that, uh, you know, I'm going to keep an eye on to see who is going to be coming to the World Cups. I'm going to be looking for what's happening with France, of course, as far as their performances. Japan will be interesting to see. Um, they've had, you know, their process and they've lost a few veteran shooters, uh, retirement. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with a number of these teams. I, I honestly think Guangzhou is going to be a great showcase. And I'm looking forward to being there myself. That'll be that'll be fun. We'll have to get some bulgogi. Yeah, you're going, huh? Yeah, looks like I am. So that'll be uh, that'll be fun. It will be a good time. Absolutely. There's bulgogi to be found. <laughs> and I, I, I imagine I, I imagine not into I'm, bulgogi. I'll just oh say. really? You're just not into I, the garlic or what? No, it's good. I'm just not that into it. There's so, always something else. I've what What is your favorite Korean food? Short ribs. Okay. Well, that's not a whole lot different than bulgogi. It is, but it isn't. I hear you. I'll tell you a very graphic story about bulgogi sometime. Okay. We'll, uh, not podcast material. Not podcast material. Fair enough. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I don't want to hear that story. <laughs> you probably don't. You can imagine what it was like, though. Unfortunately, I'm afraid I can, and it <laughs> might be better for us just not to go there. <laughs> hey, uh, we didn't have a chance to talk about Louisville. Uh, tell me, uh, how did it uh, overall, what was it like? Um, what was it like? I'm just going to, I'm not going to hold back on this. Louisville is, a, is not a great place to hold a tournament anymore. What's going um, on? The downtown area was just not not a good place to hold the tournament. Okay, I'm with you on that. I understand where you're coming from. Um, yeah. If you has... like seeing people do uh, drugs and die on the street, it's a great place to go watch 
people do drugs and die on the street because you will it find has, it. It has been a very sad deterioration socially in what's happening in that uh, in that city, in that part of the city. It's not good. Yeah. Cincinnati was a lot better. Um, we had better participation in Cincinnati. Cities just a little better. Um, anyhow, so that's Louisville. Tournament wise, you know, it was interesting. There was some hubbub with a few things and, you know, typical stuff and the non-typical stuff. And you had the USA final, which was cool. And, um, took like five hours to shoot three matches and five medal matches, but that's another thing. Um, <laughs> the uh, five spot itself, I think it just continues to be like a, a game that most people shoot one time per year. At least in the professional category, you know, you know, once per year and that's it. I, I looked at it and I'm, I'm beginning to wonder about the relevance of the five spot in terms of that particular event. I just don't know if that's the best choice anymore. It'll never go away. The popularity of it through clubs is, is just too strong. And I get that. And it, maybe it shouldn't go away. I just think, uh, you know, in terms of speaking on this as a as a professional archer, we're not, it's not something any of us are practicing. You know, it's not something any of us are ever excited to shoot for the most part. Um, and I don't speak for everyone, but I think I speak for a lot of people. I will say, um, you know, there was guys, it, it's a, it, just like Vegas, you can shoot an incredible round and have it all go wrong. And then someone else just gets through and, you know, it's, it, it, it's like a total difference in quality of shooter over two days, but all it is is surviving for two days. And what was really interesting, they switched the schedule up, which I did like pros shot Friday and Saturday with the shoot off Saturday night. Amateur classes were Saturday, Sunday. Um, so the first day pro line went really quick. I think we were done in like three hours. That's really quick for five spot. Um, second day, I think we were, four four and a half i don't remember the exact duration of the line but you know one of the younger guys in the class was kind of complaining about it and i said hey man this is part of the game like literally this is part of five spot is enduring the amount of time you're here and not just losing it because you've been here too long and you got bored and your mind wandered or whatever so that's that's a key part of the five spot game is having the ability to turn your brain off go back to the shooting line, you might be, you know, say you're, say you're the first lineup, you might shoot for, most of us take about two minutes, two minutes to shoot the five arrows. So then there's two minutes left on the clock. Those always get used up. So then you're waiting, you know, they get the line changed and you got the next group is up for four minutes. Now you're at six minutes. A lot of times, especially depending on the other classes that are shooting, it can take, I would say five, six, seven minutes to score. You go, so you, you score, you go back to the shooting line, you wait for a few minutes. So you, you may legitimately be 14 minutes between ends, you know, well, maybe not way that much. 12, 12 is very, very uh, realistic. 12 minutes between ends. And um, so, yeah, you have to endure that. It's like coming sure. up cold every time. And then, you know, five spot round, the, the other side of that is just um, 
it's very easy to shoot the X. It's just as easy to miss the X. And some guys over aim, they, they, uh, especially in the pro category, you get guys too worried about shooting inside outs. Like it matters, uh, right. qualification, you know, and then, and they, uh, they let one go. I'll say I shot a couple of the easiest rounds of my life, but I also wasn't, I didn't shoot the tightest rounds of my life by any means. I just didn't make any really bad shots. The one day I probably made about 12 good shots. I just didn't do anything bad. You know, it was a bunch of mediocre the whole way. So yeah, but mediocre in the middle, mediocre <laughs> yeah. in the middle is still in the middle with a five spot. Yeah. I kind of started laughing. I'm like, man, I don't Now I'm doing some technique change stuff too. Um, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not fully up to speed with that. You know, there's, there's times one creeps into the other and I'm not great at the new one yet. And uh, the old one can creep in and really throw everything for a loop. So is any of this related to our discussion with Joel Turner recently? Uh, Are you applying some of this? Yeah, I am. And uh, Linda's doing some of it too. And you feel like sharing some of the specifics or are you still, I, I think people should go listen to it and do it. But what I'm seeing in my shot is when I do things right, I am seeing an incredible separation of the components of the shot process, less subconscious requirement, more conscious. It's almost a, a, you're not commanding things. You're not punching or anything like that. Right. Like when people, when you use the word command in archery, people think of it as punch say, Oh, he's a command shooter on the release. Okay. They punch the release. It's not that in any way. It's a commanding of the brain to get things to do what you need them to do. So does the word intentive come into play here? To, Probably, to yeah. That'd be a good way of describing it. Intentive. You have intentiveness in the shot, not command of the shot, but intentiveness. And um, Does it require more concentration from your perspective, or is it um, something think, that you can switch yeah. on and off, you know? Right now, I would say it does. Um, does require some more concentration. And I think that's the purpose of it, too. If you let it, and I've talked about this with any sort of archery, if you, if you let it just become something that, let's say you have 10 steps to your shot process. That's an arbitrary made-up number. Let's say you have 10 steps. After five years of doing those 10 steps, you're pretty much shortcutting through four or five of them. Right. They're so subconscious that you don't have to think about them. And eventually, you know, three, four years later, you've done that subconsciously for so long that now you quit doing them. You forgot. Mm -hmm. Right. So this keeps you along the process, I'll say, because you are um, focused on on those things and you're you're like actively telling your brain stuff. So to apply, to apply a little more old school terminology to it, you're in the conscious competence state right now. Yeah. You you are thinking about what you're doing. Yeah. And, you know, I tried doing some different stuff and what it, what I found was for me to do it the way I wanted to do it. Initially, I needed to change up some things. So I switched from a click in my release to no click. Yeah, you, you mentioned way. you might try that. So, yeah, you've done yeah, it. And that allowed me to just do things a little differently. And now I'm going to go back to the click. Um, you know, I shot a click in my release for nine years. 
and it became just pretty normal. And uh, I will say this, when I shot 3D, this, this worked out a lot different. And I was, I was a little bit lost myself. It's not like that the shooting process didn't work. It's just, I think the way that the aiming process works for me and my brain is considerably different on a 3D target where you don't really have, you don't have a large bullseye to implement constant correction of your aim, right? When you're mm -hmm. aiming at a target, you're constantly correcting. And when you're aiming at a 3D, you have to register what, what happened? Where am I now? Where did I move to? You know, it's a little bit harder to recognize that. You do recognize it, but it's just not as obvious because you're not seeing it very vividly on a bullseye. So when I shot 3D, I, I didn't, it didn't work great for me. Um, and that's not, again, that's not saying that there's anything wrong with this system. It's just, I was not, I am not yet good enough at it to have it work in 3D. Gotcha. So there's some but, uh, time, there's going to be time. I mean, I was nine years doing things the same way. So, yes, I was going to say, I mean, you know, it, you're, you're doing something that's difficult to do, but also has a tendency to drive people to higher levels, which is change up what you're doing and, and rebuild. But yeah, you're in that I rebuilding mean, phase right now of that shot process. I did. I started doing that on like a Monday. You know, went to Louisville on a Wednesday, <laughs> made the shoot off. So it worked. Yes, clearly. But also, I think it's um, something that reduces pressure to a degree when you are actively working on something like that. You don't feel the same pressure to perform because you're kind of in that building mode. And so it allows you to maybe take a little bit of the pressure off. I recognize it's still there when you're in a shoot down, but... I think that subconsciously it can be a little reassuring to put yourself in that state. Yeah. You go, all right, I'm going to work this through and right. commit to it. And you go, well, I'm working it through. I don't have to worry about right. performance as much. Yeah. And I think that it's a healthy thing to try to do once in a while, even if you're at a high performance level, like you have been for the last decade, making those changes. I mean, it reminds me of a completely unrelated thing, but similar in the super talented drummer, Neil Peart from the band Rush, who was a legendary drummer, um, completely changed his drumming style, just chose to completely change his, his base for how he did what he did and was even more brilliant after that. So I think it's... Did he change the hat at that point too? He changed a bunch of stuff, but That's not the hat. the hat. The hat stayed. The hat was always a constant. The hat was a constant. Interesting. Yeah. For a moment there, I thought you were talking about the brass part, but no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the, the headwear. The hi-hat. Yeah, the headwear. Yeah. The headgear. Yeah, no, the headgear stayed the same. But anyway, um, you know, I, I really do think, just like uh, any other sport, that sometimes you've got to rebuild and uh, you know, it's a, a lot of times a, you can blend the two and that is what happens. You ultimately always throw a little bit of what you've always done in with a little bit of the new and find what works together. Absolutely true. You know, really, really, uh, important for people to be open-minded to things like that though. But I'm really happy that, uh, that you're seeing some positive results from, from what you chose to decide to work on. You know, I think that that's a reward in itself. 
Yeah, hopefully. I mean, it was yeah. time. I, I watched. Uh, I watched enough shooters do this kind of technique without. You know, I've seen this for years, and I've seen it work for a lot of people. Um, like Jesse Broadwater and I were talking about it, and he's kind of in a position where he's like, well, I've done the same thing for so long, you know, like he said, like, I, you know, I kind of want to try this. I'm just not sure if it's for me, you know, you don't know. And when you've had the success of Jesse Broadwater, maybe you don't always change things up, you know, but maybe you borrow a little bit here or there, or you, you try it, see how it, see if it sticks for you, you know, but um, just watching guys like Braden now Bodie they all have a fairly similar it's there's some similarity there's a lot of differences there but there's some similarities in their release side and it includes uh more constant movement of the release and more movement of the release whereas when I'm clicking you know I click I go to the click and then I'm only six thousandths away from firing there's virtually no movement after that it's kind of just a waiting, which as we heard Joel talking about, you know, the waiting is kind of the wrong. He said, that's what, that's what a lot of people get taught and that's the wrong way to go about it. Um, and that again, what, what people have to understand is you're not commanding a punch, right? Or you're not dumping a hinge or something like that, but you are, you are committing the brain. What was the word you used? intentiveness you are creating an intentive thought within the brain to do what you need to do that's mm -hmm. it's it's a different thing just everyone go just pay the 200 bucks and go listen to <laughs> joel turner for cheaper cheaper than a release worth 200 dollars. well that and i mean a lot of people on here are into archery right this is their hobby you want to be better at archery you know do something like this yeah and, and that's, you know, I think that was the whole point of my bringing this up was that sometimes, yeah. even if you're at the top of the top of the game, like you've been, um, making a change can be really, really healthy. And it can also revitalize your desire to get out there and work on things, get out, get out there and practice. I think yeah. that's also a useful thing. Yep. Uh, yeah. If you're another interesting thing I heard one time, um, as you mentioned, it, it gets you out there to practice and that alone is a benefit, right? Mm -hmm. One time Dave Cousins told me he tried, he's like, oh, I tried every which way of getting, we were talking about world archery field. And, you know, typically you're shooting a small diameter arrow. I think he was using a pro tour or something like that. And we all want the, the, the dream is to also be able to grab a 23 diameter shaft and use it for the bunny targets. Sure. Dave said he spent, uh, you know, he's like, I shot thousands of arrows, cutting fat boys and 2315s to different lengths, different point weights, fletching them different, trying to get those to have a, uh, a point of impact that was exactly the same as his pro tours left and right. Then he could just get a different sight mark or the up and down component um, and go with that. So he said, ultimately he couldn't get that to work, but he's, he's like, I shot thousands of arrows at a bunny doing that. You know, he said, I got to world championships and I didn't need to switch arrows. I was 
I was awesome on bunnies. No need. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and that's the point, right? The process that he went through to try to optimize an aspect of shooting at that. By the way, folks who don't know what I'm talking about, or what we're talking about here, the bunny target is a ridiculously large percentage of the points you can lose in, in a field championship. Yeah, it's not an actual bunny. It's just no. the 27-meter target. Yeah, they call them birdies in some parts of the world, and they call them bunnies in other parts of the world. It's just, it's a dime-sized uh, X-ring. <laughs> it's its not easy to shoot. And the part of the reason it's not easy to shoot is because they tend to be pretty close. So you, you're dealing with parallax issues on your sight. You're dealing with tuning issues on your arrows. Um, and, you know, you're trying to get a fat shaft, which, you know, a lot of recurve shooters have done in the past on those close-up targets to work like your long distance target that you want to shoot with your skinny arrows. Yeah. Uh, so long story short though, um, there's an awful lot of points left on the table by a lot of people when it comes to those bunny targets. Yeah. The bunny, I mean, if you're looking at it, it's a 20 centimeter, it's a, the, the five ring, which is actually yellow on a field face. For those who don't know, it's black with a yellow bullseye. The, the five ring which used to be the max ring is the size of a world archery recurve 10 or a Vegas 10. Yep. And it's the only part that's yellow. And then within that is the two centimeter X ring, same size as a Vegas the compound Vegas X ring. Yeah. Yeah. And the real hard part about a bunny is they shoot them out to 20 meters. Right. And on a field course, you can always get your steepest angles on bunnies. It's the easiest place to do it. Yes. So you're shooting two meters further than world archery indoor with a X10 pro tour, probably up or down a hill. I mean, we're talking crazy body angles, folks, if you haven't seen this. Yeah. And a little tiny to aim at thing. So yeah, things can go sideways pretty quick. Yes, exactly. And literally sideways. That's where I tended to miss them. (laughs) Never had an up and down problem on bunnies. It was always left and right. (laughs) So for, for you recurve types, where you said the parallax, because some of these get shot at 10 meters. So I imagine the arrow is still doing its dance coming out of the recurve at 10 meters. And that can make it challenging as well. Right. Yeah. Plus where your sight is, your sight is actually going to be below your 18 mark for some setups, depending on how far your eye is from your anchor and stuff like that. Yeah. So you have to to learn there. There is a lot. And the point is that by, in your example of uh, Dave Cousins, um, by Dave having done all the work to try to get a particular setup to work, he ended up not needing the setup because he improved his game on that type of target by putting in those thousands of shots. And sometimes that's what it takes. Yeah, just get out there and do the do the work, put in the effort. You know that that can be the difference. So it can. It's and- yeah. It's just. I don't know how we got to this point from whatever we were talking about. It's the usual, it's the usual uh, progression in the podcast, man. You know how it is. What else do we have to talk about? Probably the fact that you are really going to be seeing a flare up in the biggest issue in our sport in the last several years, which is the continued battle between those who favor field quivers and those who favor target quivers. And my question is, will Congress take it up again in Paris in 2024? That'll be, that'll be the real question in my mind. <laughs> um, I fully anticipate, well, you know what? I ordered a 
tar uh, excuse me yeah target quiver for greg easton the other day so so the fact I, that i can't believe that you hate target quivers so much i am pro target quiver and always have been and i don't hold on <laughs> <laughs> and your constant railing against forward-facing arrow target quivers is just uh am i you know I'm i don't know what to say I'm getting gaslit here. What? What? <laughs> yeah, I'm flipping the script on this one. Yeah, you are. After you mean after Greg decided that he wanted to shoot a target quiver. Well, Greg gave away all his stuff, so he needed a new. Quiver. He did. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did give away his stuff, and uh, you know, it's it's funny. He he did that with absolutely no intention of anybody knowing about it. But for those who don't know, Greg gave his stuff away. His his high end Hoyt recurve bow, his X tens, his quiver. I'm pretty sure his bow case was part of this deal uh, to a, uh, a kid who um, didn't have very good gear that ended up on his target at the Vegas shoot. And uh, Greg just gave him all his gear because it happened to fit him and, and all that. And so now you have to order him new stuff. Uh, yeah. And I, we got him the arrows he needs. Um, I was out of town. He asked me for the quiver. I think we got the quiver. So stabilizers on my, end, on my end, he's good to go. Uh-huh. Yeah. Stabilizers. So Greg's got a new bow. Yeah. We just <laughs> have to make sure Doug can get what did Doug get him a new bow. Doug got him a new bow. Yeah. Okay. So I guess he's squared away then. Yeah. I, I think it's still pretty cool that Greg likes to shoot recurve personally, just so just between us. Yeah, it is cool. Um, just because, you know, I don't think Greg's shooting four times a week. I don't think he's shooting four times a month. I think he's just going to Vegas and saying, I'm going to shoot a recurve. I'm going to have fun. You know, I think, hang out I with think my there, buddies. there is a, a little bit of a competitive mm -hmm. element to it. Um, Greg's one of Greg's best friends is uh, John Johnston, um, who I think you've met. And uh, John is a very competitive guy. And John is somebody who's kind of, um, uh, how do I put it? He, he likes to tease people if if they're you know, maybe not as competitive uh, as they could be, and so I think he's motivated to try to make sure that John <laughs> doesn't have much to say. John's <laughs> given the business, huh? Yeah. Hey, John's been giving me the business in pistol shooting lately. Uh, I think it's it's kind of cool because uh, I, I I introduced him to USPSA shooting, and he beat me last week. So, you know that that's a good thing, right? Yeah. I had a rough, I had a rough day. I felt, I felt a little like Chris Rock after, Will, <laughs> after Will Smith got done with him. Yeah. What a, hey, it got, you know, people talked about the Oscars, so. Yeah, that was about the only thing they talked about. Nobody yeah. cared about the rest. Do you think we need a slapping incident in Archer? Um, depends on who's slapping who. <laughs> <laughs> 